Good afternoon from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, turkeys and bonovos. In addition, we're joined by Dr. Martin Collins, who will discuss the history of the space age. Also, you can find out what the Pareto Efficient Equilibrium is. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty hungry, actually. Eating great food. Well, if you're going to eat, eat well. Yes. It's better when uh, your meats aren't soaked with lead bullets, though. I've never actually tried lead bullets on my food. Is it good? Apparently not, but that's been a problem with uh, people who game their own animals for uh, Thanksgiving. Yes. Especially, say, turkeys. That little chunky lead is not too pleasant for most people. I would guess it can only be better than some of the stuffing that I've had. (laughs) Companies are actually going to change that. They're actually working on flavored ammunition. So these are pellets that contain all sorts of great condiments, and when they enter a appraised body, uh, usually a bird, it gets embedded, and it gets slowly dissolve. So by the time you cook your animal, it's nicely flavored and seasoned. So that's kind of like that Ronco food injector thing that I've seen. (laughs) Inject the flavor into your meat. Except here it's just done at high velocities and from the muzzle of a gun. (laughs) It's a different kind of warfare, I guess. It's gourmet cuisine that you've never seen before. It's a good mix of the travel and food channel. And the hunting channel. Amazing. They're going to come out with different flavors. Cajun, lemon pepper, garlic, teriyaki, and honey mustard. Those are just like the dipping sauces of the McNuggets, I think. (laughs) Anyways, a company called Season Shot, go to the website seasonshot.com, is making this stuff and I guess it will be available very soon. Very cool. So do you think police then will also try and get some of these bullets? Want uh, the pepper spray? Yeah, after you've shot your uh, perpetrator, you, you want him to smell like mint or something. <laughs> yeah, why not? I know. Calvin Klein number nine. I don't know. <laughs> better chemistry, better living, right? Yeah, they're always coming up with fascinating things and uh, I'll just wait for the paintball version to show up and I'll be Call shooting. Call green? Well, I'm thinking Tabasco. <laughs> <laughs> This is cool stuff. You can check it out on the website or uh, just a nice blurb in um, chemical and engineering news. I guess we wouldn't need to be shooting animals if we were just more sociable with them. Where's the love, right? <laughs> <laughs> Instead of shooting that turkey, invite him over for dinner. Uh-huh. Everybody would be a lot happier. In that sense, we could be a lot like the bonobos. What's yeah. that? Well, the bonobos are very close relatives of both humans and chimpanzees. Okay. They're sort of the forgotten apes, as they were. But unlike chimps, which are very power-hungry and often warlike, uh-huh. the bonobos are peace-loving. Do they have their own UN and peacekeeping troops? Yeah. The bonobos, though, they are a very peace-loving ape, and the question is whether they seem to cooperate more than their chimpanzee cousins. Right. And this, of course, has a lot of relation to human evolution to see where various behaviors may have evolved from. So the interesting thing is researchers were examining cooperative behavior of both chimps and bonobos. They've created a task. This was a task created by Brian Hare, a biological anthropologist at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. That's in Leipzig, Germany. 
they did is they placed a bowl of fruit out for the chimpanzees, and the only way they could get it is by pulling on two ropes simultaneously. But the ropes are far enough apart that two chimps, two of these animals, have to work together to get the fruit. Right. Well, it turns out that both chimps and bonobos will pull the ropes together if the fruit are in very easily dividable pieces. But in the case of the solid piece of fruit, Mm -hmm. the bonobos will cooperate more. Right. And even when the chimps do cooperate, what they'll do is they'll have a winner-take-all mentality where they'll just take the whole piece of fruit Uh if it's just a whole piece of fruit. Whereas the bonobos, if it's a whole piece of fruit, they'll try their best to separate it and share it. Evolutionary-wise, does that mean the bonobos are more adaptable to difficult situations then? It's more a reflection of the type of environment in which the bonobos live, in which food is more plentiful and they're not under pressure from a lot of predators. So they've been able to get away with being hippie peaceniks, as it were. (laughs) (laughs) Something to learn from them, right? Interesting to look at our closest animal cousins and see what similarities and differences we might share with them. It was published in a recent edition of Current Biology. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. Martin Collins from the National Air and Space Museum will join us to discuss the history of the space age. So stay tuned. to the Grox Science Show. Well, this year will mark the 50th anniversary of the launching of Sputnik, an event that essentially marks the beginning of the space age. Since then, explorations into space have impacted broad segments of society, and in some respects, our daily lives. This can perhaps best be appreciated by looking at the artifacts of these endeavors. Well, joins today to talk about the history of the space age and its artifacts is Dr. Martin Collins. Dr. Collins is curator at the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. He received his Ph.D. from the University of Maryland and has authored and edited several books on space, science, and technology. Among them is the new release, After Sputnik, 50 Years of the Space Age. Dr. Collins, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm sure a lot of people know about the uh, Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum, but for those of them who don't, I'm curious if maybe you can talk a little bit about the institution. Uh, I'd be pleased to. The National Air and Space Museum was founded in the mid-1960s by an act of Congress, and we have been the premier collector of space artifacts ever since that time. We have a special arrangement with NASA, which also was instituted in the 1960s, which gave us the right of first refusal to all of the artifacts that came out of the civilian space program, those that came out of NASA's programs. So we have all of the treasures of human space flight and uh, many of the other programs that NASA has embarked on since its inception in 1958, just after the beginning of the space age uh, marked by Sputnik. So we have a collection that is unparalleled in its range and its depth, and it's uh, something that we'd hope to share with the public uh, in this book. Do you receive artifacts from other sources as well, then? 
Yes, we do. While our greatest concentration of stuff comes from the programs of the federal government, we also get things from the uh, the military side of the government. We get things from uh, corporations, and we get things from uh, individuals and other countries as well. That was the inspiration behind this book, was to share those very kinds of artifacts. And I should mention that the book was not only my work, but the work of my uh, fellow curators uh, here at the Smithsonian. And there are about 10 of us who concentrate on issues relating to the history of space. So this was a collective effort and reflects our individual tastes and judgments about the most interesting, important things in the history of spaceflight. So how did uh, you all choose these particular artifacts? Well, it was primarily a group decision. But the critical thing was to do a sampling that introduced the unusual things that we have, things, for example, such as a, uh, a spider called Anita that flew on, on Skylab in 1973 uh, and uh, was taken up into space to show to determine whether or not spiders might be able to weave webs in space. And Anita was extremely successful at that, weaving a web, but interestingly, her webs were 20% lighter than they were here on Earth if she had woven a, a web on Earth. So interesting little artifacts like that, things like the Apollo 11 command module that made the first uh, human landing to, to the moon with Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin. So we have a spectrum of things from the unusual to the commonplace or well-known. And we also tried to juxtapose things that came out of NASA's well-publicized program, but also things that came from military programs that are much less well-known to the public. You, you start out the book with Goddard's liquid oxygen flask. I'm curious, so what is the significance of that. Well, one of the most important technologies of spaceflight was the development of the rocket, and Goddard was one of the critical personalities, one of those classic inventors of the late 19th and early 20th century, and he was responsible in large part inventing the liquid-fueled rocket, which proved to be the critical technology that enabled us to go into space. It was the technology that V-2 rockets used later in World War II, and it was the technology that powered the, the Saturn rocket that took humans to the moon. So he was a critical piece in the history of the development of spaceflight. Part of what we show with this it is fundamentally a glass canister that looks a little bit like a thermos bottle to show the simplicity of the inventive process in Goddard's era, and this was in the teens and the 20s, and give you some sense of the challenges that he faced in trying to invent a complicated technology but having limited types of tools at his disposal. Hmm. Goddard expressed a great deal of hope and possibility for the technologies of spaceflight and what he was doing with the rocket. So from the inception of these early inventions, you had people like Goddard and, and many others who were beginning to sort of imagine how one might apply these things and how they would develop in the future and where they would lead humanity. And certainly Goddard uh, anticipated the idea that humans would go out into space. And he has been uh, recognized in that way, especially uh, the since the 1960s when we actually began to put people into space. Uh, I'm wondering if you could talk about maybe the history of the development of uh, rocket technologies. Well, the, the rocket technologies were essential, and the real sort of crucial point of the development of rocket technologies came with World War II and the German effort under the direction of Werner von Braun to develop the V-2 rockets. Those rockets proved so crucial because, one, they worked, and to devastating effect mm. to the citizens of Europe and Great Britain during the war. 
but also after the war, von Braun and his team at Peenemunde became the great object of interest for the United States and for the Soviet Union to acquire their expertise so that they could jumpstart their own rocket development programs. I'm sure as many of your listeners know, von Braun came to this country after World War II and was responsible for creating many of the rocket types that were used by the U.S. and was instrumental in developing the Saturn V that took the Apollo astronauts to the moon. But there were other sort of sources of invention with respect to rockets, too, independent of the Von Braun effort. But all of these things together were one of the crucial elements for just for getting stuff into space. It's hard to realize the amount of raw energy and power it requires to lift something from the surface of the Earth up into space. At the beginning of the space age, the first satellite that the U.S. attempted to put up was derisively called a grapefruit. It was small enough you could hold in, in your two hands easily, but the rocket required to uh, put it up. The Jupiter C rocket was, of course, an immense and powerful vehicle that was there just to boost up that little tiny piece of metal up into space. The Soviet Union, of course, beat the United States into space with Sputnik. Uh, I'm curious, maybe you can uh, put into context just the impact that this had at the time. Well, it was tremendous. The circumstances of the period where we had already been in a Cold War with the Soviet Union since nearly the end of World War II, and that had been expressed primarily through an arms race, which led to the development of long-range bombers, the development of ever more powerful nuclear weapons, and of course, further development of rockets that ties to that Von Braun story that I was just mentioning. And it was in that context that Sputnik both excited and shocked the world excited because people were keen to appreciate and understand the consequences of humanity being able to move into space and shock because it also meant that perhaps the nuclear age was something that was fundamentally more dangerous than it had been before Sputnik because people could now imagine that rockets genuinely could deliver nuclear weapons across the globe. So it had this kind of dual character which intensified the, the meanings and the feelings at the time. And uh, how then did history move from putting objects into space to putting actually humans into space? Well, that, that's the great story. It was not a foregone conclusion immediately after Sputnik that human beings would be sent into space. Certainly people were thinking about it, but it took some time both in the Soviet Union and the United States to formulate, devise, and design programs to consider putting either astronauts or cosmonauts uh, into space. And uh, one of the artifacts in the book is a rhesus monkey called Abel. And so part of the initial efforts by the United States was not to send humans into space, but to send animals. And Abel was uh, put into a special sort of container and put on top of a rocket and sent up into space. Came back with its flying mate, a monkey named Baker. And Abel died soon after coming back to Earth, but was taxidermied and put into the couch on which it went into space. And that couch and the taxidermied monkey Abel are in the museum. So that is one of our most unusual artifacts. But it is indicative of the interest and and the amount of effort that went into deciding whether or not people would go into space. Uh, you also have a, a number of the actual capsules itself from the Mercury and Gemini and Apollo projects. Yeah, yes, we do. As a consequence of that relationship that I was describing that we have with NASA, all of those capsules that were used in the Mercury program and the Gemini program and the Apollo program are uh, in the museum collection. Many of them are on display here at the museum, or I should say the most significant examples. But we loan many of these objects out to other museums around the United States and some overseas. 
What do you think were the real challenges then from moving from animal explorations and then into humans into space and to the moon eventually? Well, it was making those rockets safe enough so that they didn't blow up on the launch pad and kill uh, astronauts or cosmonauts. I say that with a, with a little bit of, of a laugh, but that was an extremely serious problem in the late 1950s. Rocket technology was still very, very new, and there were a lot of elements that were very unsafe. I mean, literally, you are putting an individual or a couple of individuals on top of what essentially is a controlled explosion with on top of a huge amount of fuel that's going to combust, so it was very dangerous, and many of the rockets exploded on the launch pad. So it was a real critical issue to make that technology sophisticated enough so that it was safe enough to fly human beings on top of. And that was a gradual process, but something that was accomplished by the early 1960s. The other part of it was figuring out what the space environment was like. And a lot of the early satellite probes were designed to just understand the nature of space near the Earth. So you sent up satellites to begin to sort of understand what the nature of cosmic radiation was, what the nature of energetic particles were. So it was a complicated and coordinated program of figuring out all of these technological and scientific aspects that would be required to safely put humans into space. Since the 1950s, even before Sputnik went up, speculations about how one would get human beings into space, and the, the analogy that was in everybody's head was modeled on the airplane. That's what everyone was familiar with. So a lot of the early space capsule conceptualizations were actually very, very plane-like. And the idea to use the capsules that we associate with the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs was something that came along as part of solving some of the problems of, well, how do you back into the Earth's atmosphere? And planes were not well suited to that problem. But after the end of the Apollo program, people began to re-examine the idea of a plane-like structure for going into space and coming back. And it was in that context that the, the shuttle program was developed, beginning in the late 1960s and uh, going throughout the 1970s. The first shuttle flight was in 1981, so there was a long period of, of development to create that technology. You end the book actually with Spaceship One, which has uh, sort of tried to combat that reentry mechanism with a very novel approach, which is this feathering mechanism. Uh, that's true, but a slightly different problem mm -hmm. because Spaceship One is not actually getting completely out of the Earth's mm -hmm. atmosphere. So it has not reached the extreme speeds and the extreme conditions that were encountered by Apollo spacecraft or the space shuttle. So it's a little bit different situation. But yes, there is a lot of inventiveness and cleverness in Spaceship One to figure out how you can return safely from a very, very high atmosphere where the atmosphere is very thin and return people safely to the Earth. It's not, it's not a trivial problem. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm curious, what with NASA now starting to change its mission focused and, of course, private entry into the space enterprise? I'm, I'm curious, what do you think is the future for uh, space travel? That's hard to say. Certainly the political situation is here in the United States makes it difficult to envision a robust program for NASA as it had in the 1960s. I don't think we're in a return to an Apollo-type program for human spaceflight. There seems to be a lot of interest in developing an a industry-based or private market-based uh, space capability, whether it's for space tourism or uh, other kinds of activity. Seems to be in some ways the most sort of vibrant element now, but it's going to be incredibly difficult for these companies to develop a capability to do this, and I guess we will see over the next several years whether there may be technological breakthroughs or advances that allow them to make this a, a paying concern. 
but I think it should be noted that the biggest and, and most important impact of space on our life now comes not from these human space activities, but from what we call application satellites, communication satellites, weather satellites, the GPS system, all of these things that have a profound effect on our daily lives and are they literally surround us now and shape the way that we live. Uh, I think that kind of outcome for space flight and its uses was not something that was entirely anticipated when Sputnik happened in 1957. And gradually over time, I think that has turned out to be the most important effect of the space age. To close, do you have any recommendations for visitors to the uh, Air and Space Museum? What should they go look at, and uh, what's it like actually being the curator of all these uh, fascinating artifacts? <laughs> well, as you can imagine, it is a fun job. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I should mention that we have two facilities where we display artifacts. One is, is on the National Mall in, in downtown Washington, D.C., and the other is at a place called the Stephen F. Udvar-Hazy Center out near Dulles Airport, which is about uh, 40 miles outside of Washington. And at that that facility, we have some of our very largest artifacts uh, that we're unable to display in our mall building. Uh, and that includes on the space side uh, artifacts such as a space shuttle, uh, the Space Shuttle Enterprise, which was a shuttle used to test the concept of the space shuttle in, in the late 1970s. And then we also have out there Goddard's original 1935 rocket and, and other things. So if you're coming to, to visit the museum, you probably want to try to visit both, both places. Well, I certainly hope all listeners will uh, definitely check it out the next time they're in the area. And, of course, the new book is After Sputnik, 50 Years of the Space Age. Dr. Collins, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Side. Thank you. And you were just listening to Dr. Martin Collins discussing the history of the space age. This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000 plus the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. game, the Grokatron 5000. That's right, it's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue, and today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, beam them up or beam them down. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if, in the space age, the beam technology exists, would you beam the following people up or beam them down? Uh, Dr. Collins, are you ready to play a game? I'm ready as I can be. Okay. <laughs> All right, person number one, beam them up, beam them down, it's Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer. Oh, boy. Perhaps beam Jerry up. He might be happier up there. Yeah. Okay, uh, number two is Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett, I guess, has to stay down here and take care of business. Uh, number three, John Glenn. John Glenn. John Glenn loves space, so I would say beam him up. I think that would make him the happiest. Uh, number four, Britney Spears. Britney Spears. It's hard to know. Maybe Britney needs to be beamed sideways, just relocated <laughs> somewhere else on the face of the earth. I don't know. Uh, and number five, finally, the President of the United States, George Bush. <laughs> oh, that's a tough one. Uh, I, I think he needs to stay down here and take care of business, too. It's just probably better for him down here. All right. Well, Dr. Collins, I wanted to thank you very much for sticking around playing our game and, of course, talking about the new book after Sputnik. Uh, thank you. <laughs> what is the laughter curve? <laughs> if you know or think you know, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but ha 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 ha. 
And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Thank you.